0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, the author of The Happiness Project and Better Than Before, Gretchen Rubin, joins us to share unconventional wisdom on happiness and habits.
1: Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Gigi Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend.
0: Gretchen, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
3: Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. You know, I have known about your work for such a long time, you know, long before I ever started doing anything online. And somehow we have, you know, crossed paths numerous times, but never actually met until we finally yeah. did at Podcast Movement. So it is really, really cool to have you here. So, uh, on that note, uh, for people in our audience who may not be familiar with your work and who you are, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, your background, and how that has led? you to everything that you're up to in the world today.
3: Okay. Well, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, um, and uh, I started out my career in law. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, which is a pretty cool job as law jobs go, um, when I realized I really wanted to be a writer. And so for more than 10 years now, I've been a professional writer. I'm best known for my book called The Happiness Project. And so my last three books, I wrote a biography of Kennedy and one of Churchill. My first book was called Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide. That was a fun book to write. Um, but my last but uh, my last three books, uh, The Happiness Project, then Happier at Home, um, and my most recent book called Better Than Before, which is all about habit formation, have all been kind of in this area of human nature... Um, how do we have? How do we make our lives happier, healthier, and more productive? You know, what can we do within our conscious thoughts and actions, and with things that are manageable and realistic? Not the ten-day silent meditation retreat, which might work for you, <laughs> but most of us can't do that. Um, but like manageable things you can do in your everyday life, and sort of the science of it, the philosophy of it. Um, I experiment on myself and the people around me. Um, and as part of that, one of my happiness guinea pigs certainly has is my sister Elizabeth, um, and she appears in, in my books. Uh, and we just started a podcast um, like six months ago called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, where we talk about happiness and good habits and all that stuff. And because we're sisters, you know, we call each other out quite a bit on the stuff we do. Um, I have a blog where I write, I, I mean, for like eight years, I've written, you know, five or six times a week on my blog about these issues, my sort of my adventures and happiness. Um, so I write books, I write on, online, i do a lot of social media stuff. Um, and now I have a podcast too. So, um, it's great to have all these different ways to engage with people on the subject because I love hearing from other people. I'm sorry, I can't turn off my landline because no if I, if I do, if I do it like won't connect again. So we're just gonna, have to, you're just gonna <laughs> have to edit it out. I'm sorry
0: about that. No problem. You know, uh, one of the things I want to look at, at back and, and do is look back at the formative experiences of your life. Uh, you know, prior to all of this starting, you know, even prior to law school, like when you were growing up, were there things, you know, that ultimately would lead you down this path of becoming a writer, like people influences experiences, that ultimately would shape where you've ended up today?
3: Well, you know, when I look back on my life, I see that I did everything that a person would do to prepare herself to be uh, a professional writer. Um, and I'm a person of very narrow interests. Like, all I like to do basically is read and write. Um, so I'm not, I don't have a wide range. And so I spent a huge amount of time, um, uh, my whole life, reading and also writing. You know, uh, I was an English major in college, then law school, you write tons. I wrote a novel in, co- in uh, law school. I wrote a novel after college. Um, and they're terrible, safely locked in desk drawers, but it's still good for a writer to be doing these things. So I did a lot of things, um, to prepare for writing. But, um, but it was, but it took a long time for me to, First of all, to acknowledge that I wanted to be a writer, and then also, truthfully, it was hard for me to see a pl- my my place in writing because I thought of like writers like you were either a novelist or a playwright or a poet or something like that, or you were a journalist. Or you were an academic writer. Like the idea of creative nonfiction, which right now is like everybody understands it. And there's all different kinds of ways that people sort of do different versions of creative nonfiction. It just wasn't a thing that I thought about. I didn't, under- I didn't realize that that was the kind of writing that I wanted to do. Um, and once I realized that, um, then I was really able to see uh, a path forward for myself for the kind of thing that I would do. So it took me a long time to understand kind of my thing
0: okay so you mentioned that it took you a long time to acknowledge that you wanted to be a writer and that you know I feel like this is such a common thing among people who have creative paths like they have this thing that is just burning inside of them wondering why you think it is that so many people fail to acknowledge it and then of course you know if they do how do they learn to see what their place is and all of that
3: well that is a very good question um because I think the flip side of it is also that just the desire to do it is not enough. Mm. I think there are a lot of people who have a burning desire to do something, but it never turns into anything. So what you need is a burning desire and the willingness to do the drudge work that goes along with it. Like what I see with writing if a lot of people are like, oh, I love to write books, but I can't be bothered like to get an agent or figure out how to sell it. or I'm like, well, that's part of being a writer. Like you don't get – like." In a way, writing a book is the easiest part because it's completely within your own control. But then you got to, like, you know even if you self-publish, like you still got to get out there and like mess with other people. It, that's part of it. I mean, for most people, most people want to have their things go out into the world. So I think you have to acknowledge that 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 there's there's every job has a lot of different tasks related to it, and sometimes you have to acknowledge that even if something doesn't come easily to you or doesn't seem like, oh, this is not what my passion is. It may be something that you're going to have to acquire. Um, now, and why do people not acknowledge it? Like in my case, I think the reason I didn't acknowledge it was part because I just didn't understand how I could do it. I was like, I had written a couple novels. They were terrible. I could not, I, I couldn't face the idea of being a journalist. To me, that just sounds like awful. I don't like anything <laughs> about that. I don't like deadlines. I don't like cold calling people I don't like I also like and this came out in my biographies I don't I think it's very hard to present a truth and so I get very uncomfortable when it's like well what's your version of events I'm like well this is one version of events but there's other versions of events that are just as legitimate so I get like all tangled up in that I didn't want to be an academic. So I had to figure out, like, I had to figure out how how to do it. And then, but I was lucky. I was really lucky for a couple reasons in terms of, like, acknowledging my passion and going, taking a risk. First, my sister, who's younger than I am, was already a professional writer. So I had a model of somebody in my, very close to me, who was a professional writer. So that was very helpful. And also, even more so, I was really lucky because every important person in my life um, was like, this is great. You should do it. Um, and this is, includes my parents, who, by the way, had just paid for law school. Mm-hmm. So here I am. I go, to, I go to Yale Law School. I'm editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. I get this writing prize. I get this fancy clerkship. They've paid them my whole way. And in the middle of the clerkship, I'm like, and now, by the way, I want to start all over from zero. I have not a clip, not a short story, nothing. And they were like, that's great. You should do it. And my father said the most amazing thing to me. I was telling him I was going to do this. I was like, okay. And then at that point, I got an agent and I sold my proposal. And he said to me, you know, honey, you might not knock it out of the park the first time, but you'll get there. And I told that to a friend and they said, oh, that sounds really undermining to me. I was like, no, it wasn't. Because my father was like, whether or not your first book succeeds or fails is not whether or not you decide whether this was the right thing to do. Maybe you hit it out of the park the first time. Maybe you don't. Um, but that still might be the right decision to have made. So I, you know, and I care what the people around, me. I'm affected by what they think. So I think I was really lucky that they were so supportive. My husband left law the same time I did. We met in law school and I, we moved back to New York and that time I quit law and like tried to get an agent and he quit law and got a job. He took like financial accounting at night at GW and then got a job at an investment bank. So we both switched together. So that was good, too. You know, it was like, yeah, you know, we're going to do something different now. Hmm. So I was I was I was lucky in that the people around me supported me to take a risk.
0: OK, so lots of questions uh, from all that. Uh, the first one around this idea of a willingness. You know, you talked about people having the desire, but not everybody having the willingness. Yes. Do you think the willingness is something that we can develop and learn over time or and, and you know, Do you think that there is something inherently built into certain people that separates the ones who have the willingness from the ones who don't?
3: Okay. So this is an all important question. And this was one of the things that haunted me when I was doing the research for my habits book, Mm -hmm. because some people can just make themselves do stuff. And other people can't make themselves do stuff. And why is it that sometimes they can and sometimes they can't? And some people find it easy and some people find it hard. And they have all these different reasons. Oh, I can't put myself first. Oh, I sacrifice for others. Oh, I'm a people pleaser. Oh, I'm afraid to take risks. Oh, I'm so lazy. Um, oh, I'm going to do it tomorrow. You know, like all these things. And then some people, it's no problem. So you are like, I refuse. I only want to do it when the muse hits me. I'm never going to have a schedule. I don't want to have a boss. Like what is going on, right? It turns out there is a very simple pattern to all of this. And I think, so when you say willingness, mm-hmm. I, would, I would put a whole different framework of vocabulary on it. So for, that, for my, my habits book, I came up with something called The Four Tendencies. And there's an, a quiz online on my site, GretchenRubin.com. If you want to take a quiz that will tell you what you are, but most people can tell from a brief description. And it, this is how you meet an expectation, an outer expectation, like a work deadline, or an inner expectation, like I want to write a novel in my free time and get it published. So upholders are people like me. We readily meet outer and inner expectations alike. So we keep a work deadline. We can keep a New Year's resolution without much fuss. Very few people are upholders. It turns out. I was shocked when I realized, like I'm an, on like an extreme, freaky, fringe personality. Then there are questioners. Questioners question every er, uh, all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they won't do anything arbitrary or rational or inefficient. Like they're always like, why should I do this? And so they'll do it if they think it makes sense. So they make everything an inner expectation. Then there are people who are obligers, and I bet a lot of the people who talk about willingness fall into this category, and it's the biggest category. These are people for whom it's very easy to meet external expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So let's say you're a person, you have a day job, you're working as a law clerk. And you, every day you have deadlines, and you have a boss, and you have colleagues, and everybody's like, Where is that memo? And you're like, I will get it to you on time. But if you're writing a novel in your free time, or you're writing a book proposal where there's no one waiting for it, there's no one supervising you, there's nobody like calling you out on it, it's very hard. To meet that inner expectation. It often feels like the outer expectation is keeping you from meeting the inner expectation. But here's the thing with obligers. Even if those outer expectations went away, the inner expectations would not be met. So obligers must have outer expectations. For them to, for even for an inner expectation, and I want to come back to that in a second. But finally, just to finish the framework, there's upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it in their own way. If you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. They don't even want to tell themselves what to do. So I have a friend who was writing a book, uh, a nonfiction like a leadership book, who is a rebel, and he's like, and I said, oh, have you made a deal with your agent? Like, do you have a book contract? He's like, no, 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 no. If I had a deadline or an editor or anybody looking over my shoulder, it wouldn't be fun for me. I can only do it if it's what I want to do. If I was answerable to anybody, I would refuse to do it. So I'm like, well, there's a guy who knows himself and how to, get, how to make himself more efficient and creative because he knows. The thing about obligers is a lot of times so, – and this is the biggest tendency. So if you feel like, oh, my gosh, it seems really important to me to do this project or that project, and yet I, over and over I find myself not doing it, the key – The answer, the simple solution, is outer accountability. Work with a coach. Start in an accountability group of other people. I have a starter kit on my side. If you want to start a group for people who hold each other accountable, you know, it's like Weight Watchers or AA when you know you're going to have to show up and tell a bunch of people, did you do it? Did you not do it? Did you work on it? It makes it much easier. Um, you can figure out a way to get a client or to get a contractor, to get an agent or somebody who's going to give you deadlines and supervision, someone you're answerable to. And for many people, that's what they need. They need somebody – you know like NaNoWriMo. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who do that, it's like you, you you get in groups. Like they have meetups. It's like there's a sense of accountability. We're all like – I'm going to ask you if you wrote your 1600 in 85 words or whatever it is. Um, and, I'm to, and if you didn't, I'm going to be like, hey, you said you were going to. Are you going to make it up? Like, what's the plan? Um, for a lot of people, outer accountability can really help with that willingness. Because I think a lot of times people think that it's kind of some kind of inner psychic process that has to be kind of analyzed and solved. I'm like, eh, no, get a coach. You know, get a contract, have an accountability partner who's going to, like, make fun of you if you don't do anything, and you, you won't have a problem. And I've heard amazing stories from obligers of how they build in this external accountability. Really ingenious solutions.
0: Huh. Okay, so there's so much stuff here. I mean, it sounds like we could spend hours talking about this. Uh, <laughs> I have a couple of questions. You know, I'm yeah. in the process of writing a book myself with a publisher. Ah. So, uh, it, you know, I, I am on the chapter that I, I call the bane of my existence or the bane of the entire book. It's been driving me insane because it's ah. a difficult chapter to write. It's about mastery uh, of a craft and how that relates to being unmistakable. But you know, there there's two questions that come up for me as I've heard you've described this process. One, you know, when we know all these things that we do about success and habits and foundations, why is it that you think there's such a general lack of awareness about these kinds of things until somebody like you comes and shines a light on it? Because you know, they don't teach you this stuff. I went to Berkeley as an undergrad. No nobody once sat me aside and said, you know, these are foundational skills for your future, which they clearly are. And then, you know, the other uh, the second question is, what role does intrinsic motivation play in all of this?
3: Well, intrinsic motivation makes everything easy, you know, Um, so it's really it's really helpful. And I mean, I think that's why in a happy life we can build a happy life only on the foundation of our own interests, our own values, our own temperament. And so the more you know yourself, the more your life reflects that, then the more easily things come to you. And I think one of the there's many reasons that we don't talk about all this stuff. One of them, I think, is that there's such a strong impulse in people to offer and to seek magic one size fits all solutions. So like people are like, oh, I've got the answer for you. Do it first thing in the morning. Start small. Do it for 30 days. Give yourself a cheat day. Everything in moderation. Um, yeah, those work for some people. Sometimes they don't work for everybody all the time. Um, but I think, so I think really this idea is that you have to think about what's true for you. Um, what are, you know, what am I like? How am I different from Benjamin Franklin or my sister-in-law or whoever else I might compare myself to? Um, what do I want? Uh, when do I succeed? When am I creative? When am I productive? Like, what do I need? Um, and if you look at the people who are really, creative and productive there's a fascinating book i bet you've read it because it seems like it's right up your alley the mason curry book um daily rituals have <laughs> yeah. you you know that yeah, book?
0: absolutely it's on my yeah. shelf i was yeah. looking at oh, it yesterday
3: book. so it's it's this like this catalog of like a, like i was it 143 outstanding people choreographers scientists novelists um, musicians of every kind and he just goes through their days and so you see what their habits are and what you see is there is no pattern in the habit some people get up early some people get up late some people drink coffee some people drink booze some people live in tremendous noise and chaos and confusion and bustle other people live you know with like absolute simplicity and silence but what you realize is that all of those people have figured out what do I need to succeed? And then they relentlessly make that happen. If they need chaos and bustle, they make sure they have chaos and bustle. If they need silence and simplicity, then they make sure they have that. If they need to go to bed early, they're in bed early. If they can, if they want to stay up late and sleep till two, that's what they do. And so, but I think our impulse is to be like, oh well, Steve Jobs ate only fruit, therefore I will eat only fruit or whatever. Oh. And um, but it's like, man, eh, it might work for you, it might not work for you.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, you know, there's one section in my book where I'm writing about this. And I said, you know, the the thing that we do is we look at success and we try to extrapolate all these lessons. (laughs) And what we forget is that there is one critical variable that (laughs) makes the difference. And that is you. Yes, that's the variable and then somehow that gets left out of all of these conversations
3: 100% and I mean that's what I write about in happiness project and happier at home and also better than before which is like my happiness project is not your happiness project like for you music might be really important or travel might be really important Um, you know maybe you need a ton of solitude like that, that your happiness project would have to be for you same thing with habits like Maybe you and I agree on that we want to have a certain outcome, but how we would set up our lives to get it could be completely different. And so it's instructive to hear what works for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, you're, you're 100% correct. The first thing, the first question is always, you know, what is true for me? Um, and, and yet it's so easy to overlook. Um, yeah, it's 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 absolutely true.
0: Yeah, well, we'll we'll get even deeper into this idea of habits and happiness. Uh, you know, there's another question I want to ask you uh, about uh, sort of external validation and the people in our lives. I mean, you had the most important people in your life give you sort of a blessing, and there's two things that I feel like happen in that moment. And, and you know, correct me if I'm interpreting it the wrong way, but you know, I mean, up until that point, your identity was I'm a lawyer. I'm like this total badass who went to Yale Law School. And so suddenly there's a sort of radical shift of identity that happens. So I'm curious about that. Like, you know, how do you how do you deal with that? And then, of course, if we don't have people in our lives, like the most important people in our lives saying yes, because in a lot of you know lives, the most important people in our lives are the ones who warn us of all the things that could go wrong and tell us, you know, it's what I I basically say. You know what? The most important people in our lives sometimes are the ones that keep us from standing on the shore instead of grabbing a surfboard and getting in the water.
1: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile
2: can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig.
3: Sometimes out of the deepest love, you know, people want to protect us from failure. They don't want us to get our feelings hurt. Um, they want us to be safe. Um, but the fact is there is no safe. I mean, look at the careers of the last 10, 15 years. Like the biggest careers are ones that didn't exist. And a lot of the careers that were considered the most stable and successful have like either vanished or been, you know, have toppled. Um, so if you think that you can tell your child how to be safe, um, you're just wrong. I mean, you don't know where safety is. Um, but you're right; it's the, the people around us. So what I have really come to believe, um, both in ha- and, and and I thought about this in the happiness context and also in the habits context, because a lot of times the people around you are like, "Well, I don't really want you to go for a run because then I have to take care of the kids, and that's a pain in my ass, so I don't want to." You know, or like, <laughs> if you if you if you don't eat if you eat low carb, then you're not going to want to buy chips and cookies, and like I like to have that in the house. So why is this fair for me? You know, like, you know. They, so they're not helpful. And what I found is that – and you mentioned the idea of identity uh-huh. – is the clearer you are about your – what, when, the more I know what is true for me um, and what matters to me, then the less it matters to me what other people think. It still matters, but it matters less um, because I have so clearly in my mind – what I want. I think the real problem occurs was when we have ambivalence ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so then when other people give us negatives, instead of being like, nah, be like that, or, you know what I mean? Or like, well, you've got a point, but I'm going to like, you know, do things my way. You're kind of like, oh, maybe you're right. You get all, you get, or, or, or having a concern for them. Like, well, I can't disappoint them. I can't worry them. I can't inconvenience them. Um, now, and sometimes and sometimes you have to take that into account. Like, let's say you want to quit a very solid job and your spouse is like, I don't feel comfortable. We have three kids. Like, we got to have a steady income somewhere. Like, that's a legitimate concern. Like, you can talk about, well, that's a legitimate concern. Um, but sometimes it's just sort of very general things like, oh, there's no future and blah, blah. I, I got a very poignant email from a girl. I mean, I think she was like 22 or something. So she seems like a girl to me, you know, a young woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I guess she must have been more like 23, 24. So she had gone to college, and she said that what she was she loved pop culture she'd always been obsessed with pop culture, and she made these giant notebooks where she like kept all these like uh you know articles and charts and all this stuff about different things about pop culture and then and then after college, she got this very cool internship at um an entertainment magazine I guess this is one magazine so it's still big, but you know so she got this internship that was really like. Right on point with what her interests were, but her parents said, "Oh my gosh, you know the entertainment culture like that. There's no like, there's no study jobs there. So for some reason, their idea of what you should do as a study job was that you should go to graduate school in psychology, which seems like an like not the <laughs> not the most obvious default. But anyway, they encouraged her to do that, and she's like, "Oh, you know, and it was really interesting. I got a lot out of it. But you know, it's several years later, and I still feel like I'm really more interested in entertainment. And so, what do you advise? And I was like, okay, so what your parents did was." They derailed you from a really cool opportunity that came to you at the right moment, which is right after college, when like you're young and scrappy and everybody expects you to get an internship. You go to graduate school where, best case scenario, you have no debt, but maybe you have tons of debt. Um, You're three years or however many years older, older you are, and you're right back where you started from, which is you're like, actually, really, I'm interested in this like pop culture, and so with all the best intentions, they wasted her time, they wasted money, they wasted energy, and they kind of moved her off the natural. Not to say we can always, you can always redo it. There's no reason you have to do things in the usual sequence, but it's kind of easier if you can. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they just sort of purposely m- moved her um, out of position. And so now she has to sort of get back into that. Um, and I just thought, man, you know, but I'm sure they had the best intentions. Um and so, but if she'd been like, you know what, this is really what I love. Ever since I was a kid, I've been totally obsessed with this. I really feel like my interest is here is something that I can can sustain me. Let me get my feet wet. Let me get a sense of the industry and see if there's a place for me to get it, like for me to work. Like we don't know that much about it. You know, usually you don't know that much about what the possibilities are. Like people have jobs you've never heard of, crazy jobs. Um, you kind of have to get into it before you see what the possibilities are. And so, you know, maybe if she'd been very clear, you know, maybe you guys don't think this is particularly interesting, but I'm obsessed with it. This is what I want to do. Um, maybe it would have been easier for her not to, not to be swayed by them.
0: Hmm. Okay. So there's a phrase that you have brought up over and over again in our conversation. And that is this idea of what is true for you. Yes. And you know, when I heard you tell that story, my mind went to this notion that, you know what, what's true for me now was so different than what it was when I first got out of college. I honestly don't know that I knew what was true for me mm, when yeah. I was that young. Yep. And be because good. of that, I made a lot of choices out of alignment with my values. And I guess the, 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 the question that raises, how do you figure out what's true for you?
3: I mean, I think, I think that's the key question, and I think that we spend our whole lifetime mm. trying to understand that. I, I think it's not an easy thing to figure out at all. I think it's painful. It's like more painful than buying a bikini, you know, trying it on <laughs> the store. It, it, it's painful, and there, a lot of times it's, 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 you don't like what you see. I mean, I think part of the problem with knowing yourself is that you have to admit to yourself all the things that you're not. You know, like I had to admit to myself, you know, I'm just not that into music, like at all. I mean, I get that other people like it, and I see the social value of it, and I wish I liked it because obviously, so many people get so much pleasure from it. Yeah. But I have to let go of the fantasy that if I only read enough books about music, which is my my plan, um, that I would love it because I don't. It's just not. It's not. And I feel sad that I there's something. This is this part of my nature that's not developed. So that's sort of sad. Um and then sometimes like you 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 wish you were different, you know you wish you wanted a more traditional path or a less traditional path, um or other people wish you were different, you know they want you to you know what you often see it 's funny like people who feel like their choices are really <sighs> Difficult or out of alignment with society, a lot of times you're like, no, it's just your family. It's just the people around you. Like, if everybody in your family is a doctor and you don't want to be a doctor, it's like, oh my gosh, well, how is that? Or if everybody in your family is in business and you want to do something where you don't make a lot of money, they're like, that's crazy. Like, who would ever want to have a job like that? But then with a different family, they would be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're going into business. Like, are you going to sell your soul? You know what I mean? So a lot of it's like the people around you are telling you that something about you isn't right. Um, and so I think you're exactly right that it takes, wisdom and experience and age and being exposed to other people's a lot of people's values where you begin to see like well this is what's true for me and this is what i have to let go of my fantasy self and i have to face the fact that other people might i might not be what other people or i I myself wish i were Hmm. um but there are questions you can ask too i'm always looking for like how do people get an indirect look at themselves because it's so hard to look at ourselves directly so one question is whom do you envy because when you envy somebody, it shows you a lot about yourself. Another thing is, what did you do for fun when you were 10 years old? Because what you did for fun when you were 10 years old, you would probably enjoy now as an adult, whether it's something for fun or it's something for career. Hmm. Um, another one is, you know, to say to yourself, if I had a perfect day, what would I do? Because a lot of times people will say to me like, oh, my perfect day would be XYZ. i Z. I'm like, that's totally attainable. That's not like Fantasy Island. Like you could you could go kayaking on a lake that's an hour from your house. Like you could do that. Like why don't you do that? And then they're like, why don't I do that? I could do that. I will do that. You know.
0: Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, I, I love this. This I, I love conversations like this because they they kind of take us in so many different directions. Uh, one of the, the the other things you mentioned earlier was this notion of values interest and temperament yep. and i'm curious you know how we uncover those in our own lives and express that through our work uh, through our habits and and sort of build a foundation for happiness which i realize is a ridiculously big and convoluted question
3: i mean i think again it's this idea of self-knowledge and it's funny because it used to be when people would be like well what are your values it's kind of like a company and they're like what are your company values and like every company like doesn't every company have like like, honesty, excellence, integrity, you know, you're like, doesn't everybody have the same, I mean, how different can they be? But then the people, you're like, oh, it's really different. I mean, like, some people, it's like, the environment is super important to them. And some people are like, ah, well, you know, it's not so important to me. Or, you know, some people, um, adventure is really important. Other people are not adventurous. Um, you know, I mean, so there's all different ways where, when you really start to drill down, you might think that, oh, basically everybody is the same, but then the more you push at it, the more you realize that people really are, in most ways we're very much alike, but the differences are very important, and that's what's really important to try to see, like, what where's the nuance? Like, what are the little things about me? Um, you know, some people, for some people, solitude, is it restorative solitude is a huge value. Um, other people, they don't need as much solitude, so that's not as important, you know, and so um, they're all different ways that these things that these things come out, and I think it's it is very difficult. Um, you know, you know it, it does take a long time um, for these things to emerge clearly.
0: So this is a question that I've asked a lot of people, uh, and I always wonder if the answer to this question emerges because it's true for everybody or mm. because I ask it. Uh, you, know, you, you, you know, we talked about this idea of you know finding out what's true for you you know, potentially being incredibly painful. And I'm curious in all of this, have there been any sort of really difficult sort of rock bottom, you know, dark night of the soul going through hell moments?
3: No, I want
0: to say not. Okay. <laughs> no. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah.
3: Um, I mean, true. No, I mean, by rock bottom, I mean rock bottom. Yeah. Yeah. I have not had that.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh. So let's do this. Let's actually do a deeper dive into this idea of habits. Because, you know, there are a lot of people who've done work and research around habits. You know, we've had James Clear here before, who spends it in, you know, a good amount of what he writes about is, is habits. You know, uh, Charles Duhigg wrote the book, pa- The Power of Habits. So I'm sure you're familiar with all of this work, given the research you've done. So I'm curious, you know, what your work revealed. You know, we talked a little bit about it at the beginning, but what else did it reveal that wasn't conventional wisdom? And how you know, as individuals, can we apply some of these things to our lives?
3: Well, again, I mean, I think the big thing, I I mean, I have to say when I was getting into it, you know, I was doing all my research, reading all those books, the people that you say and a million others, you know, I kept thinking it was kind of like the emperor's new clothes, because I kept saying to myself, you know, is it possible that I'm the only one who's noticed that everybody's not the same? Am I? Is it? is it conceivable that nobody else has noticed that some people are philosophically opposed to habits that it's not even that they don't, they can't make them. It's that they don't believe that they're worthwhile or valuable. Um, You know, why is it like, and then there are questions that nobody seems to bother with. Like, why is it, you can kind of see why a person can't form a habit of something they don't really want to do. But why is it so often that people can't have a habit of something they love to do? Mm. Like just, they just, they will say like, I love, love, love to do this. Then why can't they do that? Why do all successful dieters gain the weight back? I mean practically all diets like end in, you know, weight gain practically. Um, Why is it, you know, anyway, there was just like a million things where I felt like, how is it that no one's talking about this? Um, and so really, I very much focused on the differences among people and how those differences would affect their ability, their the way in which they could successfully change their habit. And what I found is that there are 21 strategies for habit change. And I really had – I expected to find like five, I have to say, when I started going through – um, and I really did not want to get over nine. You know, we all know that that thing, like, what is it, seven plus or minus two um, uh-huh. for for memory? <laughs> um, and I was like, once I started getting past, like, 15, I'm like, this is not good. But I, what was I going to do? I mean, these are the actual strategies that, that people can use to change their habits. I felt like it wasn't a – it was, it was like – it wasn't something that I could – I could, I could tinker with. I was actually just cataloging everything that I could find. And often what I would find is that in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a scholarly article, say, they would focus on one thing and be like, oh, well, this is the key to habits. And it would be true as far as it went. But it would be very limited in that there were, well, there's all these other things that works. Plus, a lot of times with habits, something will work very well for some people and the opposite will work for other people. And they would never say that. They would just be like, oh, this works with these people. And then you're like, but what about the people it didn't work with? And it's like, oh, well, you know, nothing works with everybody. It's like, "Okay, well, what's going on there? Um, For instance, um, in our culture right now. Um, a thing that you often hear, except in the, in the, uh, in the context of liquor and uh, smoking, you hear that you should give it up altogether, whether or not you believe that's true. That's like the conventional wisdom. Um, but everything else in moderation, right? This is the thing that we're told, be moderate, give yourself a cheat day, uh, you'll fall off the wagon if you're too severe with yourself, healthiness incorporates a little bit of everything, we should learn to manage ourselves, you know, just have one bite, that kind of thing. What I found is that actually there are abstainers and moderators when it comes to dealing with a strong temptation. And abstainers are people like me. We do better when we have none. If we ha- we can have none or we can have all, but we can't have a little bit. But it's not hard for us to have none. Moderators get kind of panicky and rebellious if they have none. They need to have it a little bit. They need to have it sometimes. These are the people who keep the bar of fine chocolate in their drawer. And then every day they have one square of fine chocolate. That would not work for me. Like I'd be eating the whole – I mean I would eat that whole candy bar (laughs) that day if not that hour. It would just haunt me until it was gone. So it's not that one way is right and one way is wrong. It's just that people have different approaches for handling – how to handle a strong temptation. Obviously, this has a lot of implications for like their eating habits. Like how are you going to think about having that bar chocolate? How are you going to think about having that ice cream? Now what you find is that most nutritionists are moderators. And they will consistently give advice like have a cheat day, have one bite, have one square. A little bit of dark chocolate will satisfy your satisfy your taste for something sweet. It's like yeah, unless you're an abstainer, in which case that's just going to unleash in you this desire to eat the whole box. It's easier to have none. And people, and as an abstainer, moderators are constantly telling me that I'm wrong. They say you're too rigid. It's not healthy. Um, I mean, I abstain from a lot. You would not believe what I abstain from. You know, I'm really hardcore. I don't eat carbs. I mean, for me, eating almonds is like as high carb as I get. So I don't eat any sugar, any flour, any rice, any starchy vegetables. I don't basically don't eat fruit. Like I really eat a very low carb diet. And most, most people would, that would not work for them. Know yourself. This really works well for me. I love it. Um, but moderators they get very uncomfortable with something like that when I tell them, because they're like, that's just not healthy. And, it's not psychologically healthy. It's not a, it's not a healthy habit of eating. Like it's totally healthy for me because for me, this is freeing and energizing. I don't have to make decisions. I don't have to use willpower. I really believe in eating this way. I do it all the time. I don't do anything different on my birthday or on Sunday or if if I'm on vacation, like I'm just over, I'm just done with that noise and I love it. Um, it's what works for me. It's not what would work for everybody, but I think a lot of times um, the advice that we see or the research that we see is very much like um, what works. I mean, I had a—I had a—I'm not even going to say who it was, but a, a research—a very eminent research scientist said, "Oh, I got a grant to study what are the best habits." And I was like, "What do you mean, what are the best habits?" Because you know, what are the best habits for people to have? I was like, "That is such a nonsensical question." <laughs> Like, that's like saying, what's the best height? Let's find out what's the best height for a person. I think the best height is 5'7". Well, do you want to be on a basketball team? Do you want to be a jockey? Do you want to, I mean, I, I mean, it's just like, who knows? There's no, how can you say? It just depends. It depends on what you want. It depends on the kind of person you are. Um And so I think with habits, what I really try to stress and what I really try to emphasize is that there's a huge ring. There are these 21 strategies we can use. Some work for some people. Some don't work for others. Some are only available to us at certain times. They're not available to us at all times. Some happen to us. They're not something that we can control necessarily. Some are very familiar and powerful and and ubiquitous like monitoring or accountability or scheduling. Everybody knows about them, they might not use them, they don't work for everybody, but everybody knows about them. And then there are others that people't haven't really thought about like abstaining and moderating, which for a lot of people is, is they haven't really thought about that. So I really try to show the, how, how you have to really think about yourself, um, what's true for you, back to the weight we were talking about, and then also the range of possibility because there's tons of things. I think a lot of people get discouraged because they've tried one or two things and it hasn't worked, but they haven't set themselves up for success and they haven't used every, they haven't used every tool in the toolbox. And I'm like, I think, I think you could have success if you maybe did it went about it in a different way. Um, so that's what I try to convey.
0: Hmm. So the question that raises for me is, is what have been the, the sort of tangible uh, results that you've seen in people's lives from your readers and, and things that you've learned as a byproduct of people you know, taking this sort of a framework that's not based on sort of the one-size-fits-all solution?
3: Um, well, I would say a lot of people lose weight. Um, they seem very inspired to email me. I think there's like a <laughs> um, a lot of people. A lot. Of, I was talking about the four tendencies framework. A lot of obligers. The idea that they need external accountability for them is totally exciting and freeing. That now they know what to do. So I hear from a lot of obligers uh, telling me what they've been able to do now that they've used external accountability or their clever mechanisms for it. They're so hilarious. One of my favorites is a woman who wanted to get up earlier uh, and how do you create, and she lived by herself. So how do you create external accountability for that? So she used Hootsuite and made a very embarrassing Facebook post that posts automatically every day at 8, 15 AM, unless she gets up early and, and disables it. Okay isn't that smart so there's just like a smart. million things that people do um to give themselves that outer kind so I hear a lot about that um I hear a lot from people who um have gotten back in touch with something that uh that they loved that they for some reason weren't able to keep up with you know that they're like oh um I realize you know I should join the soccer. I should join, you know, like a women's soccer team, and I did, and it's great. I just got an email like about that today. Um, a lot of people have less conflict too, because when you understand how other people are different from you, then you just have more forbearance. Um, it's it's funny too, because I have this podcast with my sister now called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And which is tons of fun. Um, and we talk a lot about these ideas on the podcast. And so then that's a whole other group of people that I, that I'm engaged with and I hear how they're responding to these ideas. Um, so that's been interesting too, because I think, you know, when you hear people chatting about it, it also brings out different aspects of it um, than if you read about it in a book. And so that's been very interesting to see um, what people kind of pick up on of the things that we suggest. Mm.
0: So as a writer and as a creator, I mean, what is your sort of daily ritual or what, you, what, are, your, what are your habits like?
3: Well, we just got a puppy last <laughs> week, an 11-week-old puppy. So I always got up at six and did like email and social media and stuff um, from six to seven, which is when I wake up my daughters to get everybody ready for school. And by the way, again, this, the conventional wisdom is like, that's totally wrong. I'm a morning person. So I'm at my most productive and creative early in the day. Uh-huh. Uh, in the first part of the day, which is absolutely true. So I For a long time, I was like, it's not right that I spend this first precious hour doing like these like tiny tasks. But what I realized is I can't settle down to actually write anything real until I feel like I've kind of gone through my inbox and seen what's there and kind of cleared the decks. So I'm like, you know, I see why that, that is good advice for a lot of people. It doesn't work for me because it doesn't suit my frame of mind. So then I let go of that. Um, but now we have a puppy and he's only 11 weeks old. So I get up at 5:30, Um, so that poor little guy um, can go outside. We live in New York city, so he needs somebody to take him down in the elevator. Um, so I do that and then I get my daughters off to school and then, um, what i every all my days are different which is too bad i wish i were like a uh, like a monk who had the exact <laughs> same um schedule every day that i would love that as an upholder um but every day is different for me cuz i'll have meetings or i'll have to record my podcast or i'll have to have a conference call or i have to meet somebody or whatever um but w- when i'm writing a book uh doing original writing which is to me the hi- the highest value work I try to have three hours a day when I can do it. And then everything else is like, I write a blog post or I'm you know, i on the phone with my sister or I'm answering emails or I'm scheduling a talk or something like that. Um, three hours doesn't sound like that a lot unless you're like a writer in which you're like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of writing. Um, there's a little library right near my house and I will often go there because when I'm in my off my home office, I have three monitors. I'm like, you know, it's hard. It's harder for me to focus. And so I use just this tiny one block commute to be, and I've always loved working in libraries. I've always been attracted to libraries my whole life. So I love just, I just sit, there's a little table squirreled away in the stacks. It near the P in uh, fiction. I'm in there in the L and P authors. Um, I look at their spines as I gaze over my laptop and try to think about what to write. Um, and then, and, and so then everything else has to sort of fit in. But, you know, I, as an upholder, it's not hard for me to get myself to execute, particularly. So that isn't something that I have to struggle with. And one of the things I really learned is that I'm really lucky. You know, for most people, they need, they need to think through structure more and accountability and um, monitoring and things like that. They can't just be like, oh, yeah, I'll get that done by October 2nd. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not hard for me. Other things are hard. That is not hard.
0: It's interesting because uh, you're right. I mean, it, it's funny, right? We, we we talk about conventional wisdom and I was listening to you say, like, you get on social media first thing in the morning. I'm like, I was horrified by that because the yep. first thing I do every morning is write a thousand words. If I get on social media, I'll be hosed. Like that pinging around just destroys me creatively. Yeah.
3: See? And so you know yourself and you have the habit that supports you. For me, I need to feel like I've kind of, I've like sort of surveyed the landscape and then I can, then I can be like, okay, I'm, I know what's going on there. And now I'm going to turn my attention to other things. Yeah. So there really, there's really very little conventional wisdom. I mean, one of the few things that works for everybody is to get enough sleep. And mm-hmm. I zealously guard my sleep. And if you are a creative person, like, your brain is the most valuable thing you have. And so getting enough sleep is one of the few iron laws of habit formation, I would say. Though you might go to sleep at nine or you might go to sleep at three. Um, yeah. But. You need to get enough sleep.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I don't think there's one person who hasn't emphasized the importance of that on this podcast. I mean, what yeah. I, you know, all the research I've done, sleep deprivation aggravates oh. depression. It oh, aggravates yeah. everything.
3: Yeah. 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 Uh, it's just the worst. It does a lot of bad things to you.
0: Hmm. Well, this has been awesome. I mean, it's been such a, a sort of uh, you know dive into unconventional wisdom about uh, <laughs> happiness and habits. In fact, I think that's what I'm going to title the interview. Uh, which, you know, it, like I said, now I kind of want to dive into the book and see, you know, what have I been applying a one size fits all formula to in my oh, life?
3: Yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear what, what answers you come up with, if any, that would be fascinating.
0: So, cause I you've have, thought a
3: lot about this yourself.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. I mean, well, think about all the people that I get to talk to. So, uh, so I have one last question, which is how we close all our interviews at, uh, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
3: What a good question. You know, I guess it's voice. And what it, what is voice? Like, that is, that is, that is the question. Um, I'm obsessed with, like, word choice as voice. Like, I was just reading Flannery O'Connor because she switches between, like, colloquial and formal so beautifully and with so much effect. And I was just trying to understand how that worked. Or George Orwell with this perfection of word choice that is just so striking and so satisfying. So that's their voice. Um, and one thing that I, I remind myself often, because if, especially if you're out there, um, like on the Internet, um, that a strong voice repels as well as attracts. And if you're going to be unmistakable, probably not everyone is going to like it. <laughs> but if you try to make yourselves acceptable to everyone, you're not going to be unmistakable. You're going to be generic. You know, you're going to be safe. You're going to be bland. Um, and I think to be unmistakable, you, you sort of have to be willing to accept the fact that it's not going to be to everybody's taste. Mm.
0: You might have just given me the introductory quote for this next section okay. of my book.
3: Oh, good. You the Bane of Your Existence chapter? Yeah, I, tra- oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to see that chapter with that. The Bane of My Existence chapter. Like, yeah. That, like, I'm li- I'm going to read that chapter first. <laughs> if it was the Bane of His Existence. Nah, I'm interested in that. Uh, <laughs>
0: well, like I said, this has been fabulous. And uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your oh, story you. and uh, your insights with our listeners.
3: Oh, thank you.
0: And uh, for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,